Well, that was sweet. I'm glad you guys were here to be able to worship along with us and be in the presence of God. Now we get to uh, say some really important uh, and, and really awesome words. Let's open our Bibles. Let's open our Bibles and go to uh, the book of Romans. Uh, we're going to be in Romans chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, you'll notice our ushers are coming around. You can just get their attention. They would love to give you one. Or you can follow along with us on the Bible app. And we are going to be in Romans chapter 1. And we finished our series last week on pursuing the mission. And uh, if it's okay with you, I just want to kind of tell you where we're going. Some of you like to know the plan, right? And uh, we've been working through the book of Exodus this year, and you're like, well, why aren't we just jumping back into the book? Of, well, trust me, we're going to get there. We're going to get into Exodus in January, and we'll take that all the way through Easter. But starting next week, we are going to uh, have a series. We're going to take the whole month of November and look at the power of Thanksgiving. The power of Thanksgiving. Now, uh, we left off in Exodus this summer with the children of Israel kind of out in the wilderness and not doing so hot, really struggling with their attitudes, and, and, and the Lord was bringing some conviction on us and, and, and not wanting to be complaining, but really learning to uh, be joyful and be thankful and uh, recognizing all the reasons that we have to be thankful. And I thought, uh, man, if we could just uh, take some time, what I want to do is look at the practical implications of what it looks like like to have a heart that is full of joy and, and, and thankful to God. I think there's going to be some things that, that might actually surprise you. And, and so we'll look at that uh, starting next week. And then from there on, it's a race to Christmas, which is crazy, I know. Uh, but uh, today, I want to do something a little bit different. Haven't done this in a couple of years, and I thought uh, now's a great time to do this because Thursday is uh, a, a national holiday. It is October 31st. Does anybody remember what holiday it is? Somebody got it right. Okay. I know it's Halloween. It is, it is Halloween. And I know for many of you guys, that means uh, you're going to bust out your uh, uh, costumes. Anybody get the zip-up jammy ones? You, you get those at Target? Or uh, it's an excuse to go get free candy, and I get to exact my daddy tax, which I for sure will take advantage of that privilege and uh, get some free candy out of it. I know. But, but when it comes to Halloween, let's just be honest, um, we, we kind of wrestle with it a little bit because we realize that... that as believers in Jesus, we, we really don't want to be celebrating death and evil and satanic forces. That's not necessarily something that would really be becoming of somebody who really loves Christ. But uh, here, here's what I want to do. Today, I want to give you some history, okay, that is really, I think, going to give us a, a better reason to celebrate. October 31st, in the year 1517, I've got a picture of it. There was a man named Martin Luther who nailed his 95 theses to the door at Wittenberg in Germany. And we'll, we'll kind of talk a little bit more about what that was and, 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 and why he was doing that. But I just want you to understand that was just over 500 years ago, if you're doing the math. And, and historians look back to that day and, and mark that event. That was the event that sparked the Reformation. And the Reformation literally rocked the world and altered the course of Western civilization, and it has impacted you whether you realize it or not. We're actually enjoying some of the implications of that movement right now, and what I want to say is we have a lot to be thankful for. So really, I, I know Thursday is Halloween, but it is 
Reformation Day, all right? So you get to bust out those fun-sized candy bars for a better reason uh, this year. And maybe, uh, just maybe, I I know I'm doing this because uh, I I kind of enjoy history. Maybe that's not everybody, but uh, maybe you could uh, get a little creative. Uh, I had to show this picture. This was me uh, two years ago. Uh, dressed as Martin Luther, um, and, and I'm kind of digging the hair. I can't grow it right there in the front anymore, but uh, like I am a nerd, okay? I get it. I understand. If you want to know more about this, I'll tell you, there's actually some good resources that you have access to. Uh, we've given you all free um, uh, access to Right Now Media. You all have your Right Now Media account. If you go to your Right Now Media account and just search Luther, you're going to find all sorts of great resources there. And uh, in fact, there's even like a, a kid's version. I think there's like a like go version. It's like six minutes long. It's fantastic. And then there's also a cartoon version if you want to hear about it. Those are some of the resources that are helpful. But here's what we want to do this morning. Let me, let me tell you what we're going to do. We, I, I want to look at uh, and unpack Romans chapter 1 verses 16 and 17. And while we do that, I want to tell you the story of uh, Martin Luther's life and and really how God used this verse, especially verse 17, to recover and preserve the heart of the gospel message and bring reformation to his church. We got some things to celebrate as we do that. So let's look at Romans chapter 1. And we're just looking at these two verses, starting in verse 16. Paul says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. God, we thank you for um, the the opportunity. What What a privilege, and sometimes we just skip right over this, that Um, This is a special thing that we get to do to have these books in our hand that we can open up and hear from you. And and I thank you so much for uh, the recovery of the heart of the gospel, that we would make much of Jesus and that we would understand our need for you, that that we need the righteousness of God. And that's something that honestly uh, should be good news to us. And so I pray that as as we unpack this, that you would really... uh, massage this message down deep in our soul and that we would rejoice and celebrate what you have accomplished for us. So I thank you for um, the privilege of knowing that as we open this up, your spirit is present and I pray that your spirit is actively working, filling us so that we hear it and so that we respond to it, so that we know you, we love you, we delight in you and we give you all the praise that you deserve. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, um, we're going to look at these two verses, and, and I want to give you um, two reasons that we have to be thankful and celebrate, all right? And, and uh, this is going to be a good week for you to celebrate these things, and uh, I think you'll understand why. Let me give you the first. The first is that we want to praise God for the gospel of Christ. Praise God for the gospel. Paul says right there in verse 16, he, he says, I am not ashamed, meaning Paul is not, I, I, he's not embarrassed about it. He's not afraid to just start talking about it, even though that message is not really popular, people aren't gonna like it, people will make fun of him, and it's even risky and it's dangerous for him to do that. He knows he wants to get this message out, even if it's gonna cost him, because he knows, he says, this has the power to save, that sinners need to believe and trust in Jesus as their Savior, he's the only hope. 
And I think, man, we need to learn a little bit of this. We need to grow in our willingness to step forward and be courageous, to be bold about this and make sure that we're not ashamed, that we're not embarrassed, especially when that moment arises, you know, when you're having a conversation with someone, you realize, like, I could say something right here. I could turn the conversation. We could talk about Jesus, but, but there's a choice in that moment, right? Like, I, I got all these excuses going through my head about why I, I probably can't right now or why I, I shouldn't do that. It's a choice. Are we going to be unashamed? Are we going to be courageous in our evangelism? Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And, and the gospel, just let's just get this down. The gospel is good news. It's good news. Uh, imagine that you receive a bleak diagnosis from your doctor. You, you, you go to the doctor's office, and she tells you that you have cancer. And it's serious. It doesn't look good. Um, uh, prognosis is pretty bad, and now you're facing death. That's a pretty bad uh, place to be, kind of a devastating news. But then imagine that a few days later, you get a phone call from your doctor, and she tells you that a cure has been found, and, and they're ready to start treatment immediately, and there's great hope for recovery. That would be good news, right? Uh, if, if you're in that kind of a position, you need some good news. Well, I want to tell you uh, that, that, that nothing could be worse than staring down eternity in hell and knowing that you deserve it. But the Bible says that's our reality. But the good news is that instead of facing judgment, you can be saved because of what Jesus has done. Well, Martin Luther, what he was being told by the church 500 years ago didn't really seem like good news to him. He was actually a monk in the Catholic Church, so he's like embedded in the core of this, and he's wrestling with the teachings, and Luther was miserable. In fact, his story really starts, uh, no joke, on a dark and stormy night. So on a dark and stormy night, Martin Luther is a young law student, and he's traveling outside, so you just kind of imagine he's uh, walking, and, and all of a sudden, he gets caught in this horrible thunderstorm. Anybody else not a big fan of thunderstorms? Yeah, yeah. So you could just imagine what happens. He's, he's, he's out there running in the rain, and there's this crack of lightning right nearby him and knocks him to the ground. Now, I don't know what your choice of words might have been in that moment, but his was a prayer to a saint. That's what he knew. He's going to pray to, literally, he kind of blurts out, Saint Anne, help me. I'll become a monk. He basically makes a vow that he'll join the church if he makes it out alive, if he survives the storm, which he does, and so he becomes a monk. But Luther's one of those guys that just kind of like throws himself into whatever he does. So he throws himself into uh, the practice of religion, and he was really, really devout in this. And he hated uh, this verse, verse 17. Because the righteousness of God made him live in fear and terror. The, the, the idea of knowing that God is righteous and, 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 and God is holy and Martin Luther knew that he was not. 
and he was doing everything that he could in his own power to get peace with God. I mean, he made his vows of, of chastity and, and poverty and obedience, and he's praying and he's fasting and self-denial and, and confession. I mean, that's one of the main tenets in the Catholic Church. He's going and, and he's confessing. Literally, he would spend hours in the confession booth just going over everything, bringing up every thought, every act, every feeling, and he'd get done confessing and then feel proud about himself for confessing, so he'd have to go back and confess that. Literally one time, his confessor told him that he needed to go out and commit a real sin so that he had something to confess. I mean, this guy is trying, he's working so hard trying to earn salvation. In fact, later in his life, he said, uh, if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. If the gospel message is you got to be a good person, you got to try harder. You got you to be righteous. You got to do enough good things to try to outweigh the bad so that you can earn favor with God and, and maybe God will be happy with you. If, if that's the message, that is not good news. Because I don't know about you, but I can't keep up with that. So poor Martin is a miserable monk but he's really devoted to the church and, and they're trying to figure out what to do with him. And so they sent him to Wittenberg in, uh, there in Germany. And he's basically, he's going to the university. He's basically gonna be a professor and a pastor. And he starts preaching and, and teaching and he starts working through the book of Romans. And he doesn't even get out of chapter one and God used this verse, especially uh, verse 17 the truth of this verse God used to change his life and to change the world. Look at it with me. It says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. What is the righteousness of God? What, the question is, what, what is, what is that referring to? Um, a lot of commentators give us, maybe there's a couple options. One gives us three, and I think that might be helpful for us. So, so, so one option is that the righteousness of God is referring to uh, God's nature, that God is righteous. That's who he is. It's his character. Or, or maybe another option is that it would refer to his activity, that everything he does is Right, it's just, so his actions are uh, righteous, so it's what he does. So it could be uh, who he is and what he does. And while I actually think it could be both, we probably don't have to pick just one, it was this third option that became a stunning rediscovery of the gospel. And that is that the righteousness of God is referring to his gift to us. It's the righteousness of Christ that is given to us through our faith in Jesus. It's his righteousness. It's not ours, but he gives it to us. In fact, in just a few chapters later in Romans chapter 5, he's going to call it the free gift of righteousness. It's the gift that God is going to give to us. And then Paul goes on in this verse. He quotes from Habakkuk chapter 2 at the end of verse 17. He says, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith, or the translation of the Greek that really helped Luther discover this, its meaning is this, the one who by faith is righteous shall live. The one who by faith is righteous 
shall live. So he's not talking about uh, what good and righteous people do, as in this was a verse to kind of exhort them to try to be one of those good people, one of those righteous people. Because later in in chapter 3, he's going to say, Paul's going to say, none is righteous. No, not one. So what he's not saying is try to live like a righteous person, as if that's going to save you. Because the reality is we're not. None of us are. And the only way that you can be righteous, Paul's saying here, is not by trying but by believing, by having faith in Jesus. Now watch what happens. If you have faith, you will be made righteous. And if you have been made righteous, you will live. The one who by faith is righteous shall live. Now let me tell you why this is really important that we understand our theology here. It's important because God does not just sweep our sin under the rug. It's not a point where God's like, you know what? It's really not that big of a deal. I mean, just, just forget about it. I'll, I'll, I'll forgive you. No, that would not be just. And God always does what is right. And sinners cannot live. The penalty is death. The only way to live with a holy God for all of eternity is to be righteous. So are you righteous? You see, that's the problem. Romans is telling us that that none of us are. the, The problem is we can't be that. No matter how hard we try, no matter what we do, Scripture tells us that even our righteous deeds are like a a, a polluted garment. It's gross. It's impossible. There's, There's nothing we can do. But that's where the gospel comes in. Because it's not about what you do. It's about what Christ has done for you. But watch what happens here. I've got a few scriptures on the screen so that we would begin to understand this. Romans chapter five, uh, Paul says this. For as by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, The many were made sinners. Adam sinned. We inherit that sin nature. His sin is imputed to us. We are sinners. So, he says, by the one man's obedience, that's Jesus, the many will be made righteous. So think about this. Jesus is righteous. He is righteous in his character and in his actions. It's who he is and it's what he does. He obeyed and it's by his righteousness and his righteous performance that we are made righteous. God makes us righteous by the righteousness of Christ. Then he says in 2 Corinthians 5, how how does this happen? Uh, Look at 2 Corinthians 5 for me. It says, God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So here's what's happening. This is what we call the great exchange. That Jesus took my sin and died on the cross in my place and paid for that sin. And in return, he, in exchange, he gives me his righteousness. I am given the righteousness of Christ. How? How is that even possible? How does that, how does that work? Well, you're looking at it in verse 17. It is from faith for faith because the righteous shall live by faith. It means that 
All we do is we trust and believe in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Romans 4, I've got this one for you. Romans 4 then says, To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So, so we are ungodly. But God looks down on us and, and legally declares that we are justified when we believe in what Jesus has done. And, and he counts our faith as righteousness. So he looks at us as if we are as righteous as Jesus because we have been given the righteousness of Christ. We even sang those words this morning. Clothed in the righteousness of Christ alone, faultless to stand before the throne. That God would look down on us and say, faultless, righteous, you are made righteous and you can enter in and live with me for all of eternity. And in that moment, in that moment of realization, I think Luther's world just completely turned upside down. And he went from somebody who was trying and striving to try to be good enough. And, and, and he realized it had nothing to do with his performance whatsoever. And that despite his unrighteousness, God looked at him as righteous because of Jesus. We have salvation because of the work that Christ has done for us. Now, let me tell you that the implication of what that means is that I don't have to wonder where I stand with God. Is he still mad at me? Is he, is he going to get back at me? Have I, have I, have I earned favor? Is he, is he going to be pleased with me? Listen, we have the confidence that we have the favor of God, that he looks at us in, in love and in favor, and we don't have to earn it, and we can't lose it because it's not dependent on us. That is good news. And so as, as Luther was reading through Romans chapter one, his eyes were open to the gospel and then he began to see it on every page in the Bible. It's everywhere. Praise God for the gospel of Christ. The problem was the Catholic Church in the 16th century had really distorted the message of Jesus and had made it a, a works-based religion. You gotta earn it, you gotta do this, you gotta, you gotta keep up, all these hoops you gotta jump through. And, and don't think that works-based religion is not a threat even today. Sometimes even in churches we'd assume it wasn't. Here's the deal. You're not going to be here forever. Um, either Jesus is going to return or you are going to die. That is kind of the reality of where things are going. When you do, do you know where you're going? Are, are you going to live with God forever? Or are you going to face eternity and judgment? I think that future is actually coming sooner than most of us realize. And the reality is if you're, if you're trying to count on some system of fairness in your mind and, and, and hoping that you'll get some sort of, of credit for being a, a decent person, for being a, a good person, and, and, and that maybe it'll, you know, like all these good things that I've done, that, that all those good deeds will outweigh anything bad that I've done. If, if, 
If that's the way you're looking at this, then you've missed the good news and you're gonna pay the penalty for your sins. You can't trust in yourself, in your works. You're a sinner and you're guilty. But that's where the good news comes in. I was reading this morning in my devotions in Ezekiel, which is fantastic. But one of the things I'm wrestling with is going through is just how awful the sin of Israel was. Disgusting. They played the whore with everyone, all the nations around them. And you read the, just how, uh, how, how far they had strayed from the Lord. And, and I, as I'm reading, I just had that feeling of like, Lord, this, these people, they're too far gone. There's no way. And then realizing that the story of the prodigal son is the answer that even in reckless living, no matter how far you've gone, no matter how much uh, evil you've taken part of, grace is still available. And God comes running. And that can be forgiven because Jesus died for that sin. He died for all of your sin on the cross. Don't reject your only hope for salvation. Today, you can be saved. So when Luther finally understood the message of the gospel, it changed everything. But that's not what the church was teaching. But it's what the Bible says. And so as he's growing in his understanding and his conviction about the truth of the gospel and God's word, you can kind of see where this is going. Kind of put him on a collision course with the church. Uh, The problem was at at that time, um, nobody had a, a Bible. There were no Bibles in the common language for people to read. It was all in Latin, and all of their services were in Latin, and most people didn't speak Latin, so you have no idea what's going on. You don't know what it says. You can't read it for yourself, and so whatever the pope or whatever the church leaders say, you just have to take that as truth. Just imagine if that was the way it worked here today. Like I'm, I get up here every Sunday, and I tell you that I'm speaking for God, and I'm reading out of this book that you don't have access to, and you can't really understand it even if you did, so there's no way for you to fact check it. You just have to take my word and believe whatever I tell you to believe, and if you don't, well, I'll just condemn you to hell. That's the way it worked. Are you thankful for the book in your hand right now? I think that's the second reason that we uh, can be thankful and celebrate is this. Praise God for his word. <clears throat> Praise God for his word. Look, look at what it says there in verse 17 again. He says, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God, that, that righteousness that he has graciously given to you, that he credits to your account, even though you don't deserve it, that good news, the righteousness of God is revealed. The word revealed there means it's, it's, it's kind of uncovered. Uh, it, it is made known publicly, especially something that had previously only been known by a few or had been kept secret. It means unless it's revealed, you won't know it. And, and so that's the reason that Paul is so eager to go and preach the gospel in Rome. That's the context of what he's been saying in the letter. Like, guys, I can't wait to get there. I want to be able to come. I want to proclaim this. Basically, because we need to go and preach and proclaim this news to sinners. That, 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 that right now, they stand condemned. But they need to hear this good news that you can be made righteous. You can be justified. You can be saved from the wrath of God. But they don't know that. It needs to be revealed. 
Unless God reveals it to us, we would never know the gospel. But listen, we are holding it in our hands right now. Because God has revealed his plan of salvation through the person and the work of Jesus by the Holy Spirit inspiring men to write it down for us in our Bibles so that we would know. The the Pope at the time, um, back in the 16th century, was trying to build uh, St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And in order to do that, uh, he was trying to raise money. We've got to pay for this somehow. And so um, to get some money to be able to uh, uh, get this construction project underway, he commissioned a man by the name of Johann Tetzel uh, to go out and to sell indulgences to the, the, the common people. And if people bought these indulgences, then they would take the money and send it back to Rome and they could uh, build this basilica. Now let me help you understand what an indulgence is and what's really going on here. Well, Uh, In that time, the church was teaching people that when you died, you still had to be punished for a lot of your sins for a while in a place called purgatory. It's like you'd have to go there and work it off a little bit. And and so, uh, uh, but they also told us that, that there were some saints who had done so many good works while they were alive that it was kind of like extra credit that the church had stored up and they were now making that available to you for a price. And so you could literally buy this piece of paper, this indulgence, and if you had this indulgence, this credit from somebody else who did some some good works, then that indulgence that you paid for would shorten your time or, or somebody that had died that you really loved, it would shorten your time that you had to spend in punishment, in torment. All you gotta do is pay a price. And so Johann Tetzel is going around and he's going town to town. He comes to Wittenberg and he's selling all these indulgences and he's got, you know, great fanfare when he does. He says, when the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs and people are just lining up with their money to buy these indulgences to try to get out of purgatory faster and so they can avoid judgment and, 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 and they're just bilking lots of money from these poor people and Luther's watching what's happening and he's reading his Bible and he's saying, this is wrong. This, this is not what the gospel is teaching. And that is why he nailed the 95 theses to the door at Wittenberg. These were arguments against the sale of indulgences and trying to challenge what the Pope has been teaching. Basically, Martin's just trying to say, listen, I love the church and all, but these are some things that we need to talk about because this is wrong. And he's wanting, uh, really, to spark clarifying conversations. He wanted the church to just get the gospel right, uh, but he just found more opposition, and so he became more and more convinced of uh, the heretical and dangerous teaching in the Catholic Church, and he didn't back down. So you can imagine what's going to happen here. He's preaching the gospel. People are hearing this. This is actual good news, and indulgence sales go down. They're challenging the church's teaching and authority. Pope's not too happy about this. But um, don't forget that in in those days, 
There was no separation of, of church and state. And so, so this kind of fanned the flame of, of political tension as, as Luther is becoming increasingly more and more popular and people are listening to this and, and, and coming to Christ and understanding the gospel. And, and the church thinks that what he's saying is dangerous, so dangerous that they actually take Luther's writings and they burn them. And then the Pope wrote him a letter of excommunication demanding Luther to recant. And so Luther took that letter and burned it. He's one of my favorites. I just got to say that. So the, so, so the Pope excommunicated him, which meant that the Roman emperor should have had him arrest, arrested and executed on the spot. But uh, there were some uh, political reasons, and, and this, this, this political situation is incredibly complex. He, he basically, they summoned him uh, to come and, and stand trial before the emperor. And this is that famous scene now where... Luther's standing before the emperor, before the pope. He's got all of his writings laid out on the table, and they ask him, did you write this? He said, well, yeah, but that's not everything. And they say, they call him to recant. And he actually understood the, the, the gravity of this moment, so he actually asked for, uh, give me a night to think it over. And he's wrestling with the Lord, knowing that this, this, is an, this is an opportunity. Is he going to be ashamed of the gospel, or is he going to make a stand? for the truth. And the next morning they called him in, charged him, told him to recant. Here's how he responded. He said, unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. Bro. You just, okay, you just stood up to the most powerful men on the planet. You're in trouble at this point. And so uh, he's excommunicated, but I told you that he had actually been brought there under this, uh, th this condition that he would actually be granted safe passage back to Germany. So at least at first, they, they weren't supposed to touch him while he was on the road back home, but everybody knows at this point he's a dead man. And, and while he's traveling back to Germany, he was captured. But as it turns out, the people that captured him were actually his friends. His friends knew what was going on, and so they grabbed him on the road, and they took him to, uh, this is the castle at Wartburg. They brought him here in Germany because uh, they knew that Rome wasn't about to let him live, and so they hid him away in here, and he stayed in the castle for 11 months. He's, he's here for a, a long while, spending a whole lot of time all by himself. In fact, I think I've got a picture of the room in which Luther stayed. He's holed up in here, and it's actually in this room that he does something else to ensure that the gospel's going to get out. While he's holed up here for safekeeping, he kept himself busy by translating the New Testament from German into, or from Greek into German. And it only took him 11 weeks, which is pretty crazy. But he translates the whole New Testament so that the people now have God's word in a language that everybody can understand. Get God's word into the hands of God's people and, and a passion for the Bible just started spreading across the world. 
just a few years later, a man named William Tyndale then turned and translated the New Testament into English, for which we praise God. He started smuggling Bibles back into England, for which he was eventually strangled and burned at the stake. You realize that so many believers have literally given their lives so that we can hold these Bibles in our hands. And there's many more who still don't have this. And so the work of, of Bible translation actually continues. And this is kind of close to home for us. Carissa's cousin, uh, Kendra and Logan. I think I've got a picture of them out here. Um, this is, this is uh, Logan is the second on the right with the big old beard. I love them. They took their family and they moved to uh, Indonesia and they're working among the Dem people there. It's a tribe that, that um, didn't even have a written language. And so they're like, they've been there for years now and, and had to start from scratch and just take this uh, oral language and translate it into uh, create an alphabet. And, and here you see they finally built a, uh, a school building and they're teaching literacy, teaching them how to read and write. And the goal is that they would translate the Bible into their language so that they can read it. So they have God's word so that they can hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, what do we do with this? What do, we do? what do we do with all this? How do, how do we apply this? Well, I got two things that, that I think might be really helpful for us as we uh, hear these kind of stories and the way God's used this. And the first is gonna be pretty obvious. The first is this, just read your Bible. I mean, do you have an appreciation and just know what a privilege it is that we, we get to do this and don't let it collect dust this week. If we are going to grow as a church, it's not just going to be what happens here on Sundays, but it's what happens throughout the week as God is meeting with you and speaking to you through his word. And if you've been struggling with maybe just trying to be consistent in that and opening up God's word every day, just some practical things. You have the Bible app. I see many of you are using your fake Bibles right now. Just get, download the Bible app. There's some Bible reading plans on there. Just read a little bit, a little bit every day. Find a, a Bible reading brother, Bible reading sister. Maybe it's somebody in your small group, somebody that can come alongside of you and just say, hey, let's read this together and hold each other accountable and talk about what, what God is showing us. We need God's word. The second thing is it's time to celebrate. Celebrate. Thursday is Reformation Day. And I hope you kind of appreciate, man, this is just a reminder of all that we have to be thankful for. It's just incredible uh, just to think about how God has preserved his word through the years so that we can know the truth of the gospel, that we can trust in Jesus as Lord. Praise God for Christ and his word. This day is not about Martin Luther. It's about the one who saved Martin Luther. And it's the one who saves us from our sin. Helps us understand that it's not about what we do, but it's about what he has done for us. We give glory to Jesus. I want to read you the words that Luther penned in his famous hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. He says this, Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Do you ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. The Lord of hosts, his name, from age to age, the same. Father, I thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you have given us this gospel 
that we don't have to earn it. We don't have to be striving to try to get favor with you. We don't have to wonder where we stand and if you're happy with us or if you're going to strike us down or we're not trying to gauge uh, the temperature of, of your attitude. We know that you love us and that we have favor with God, not because of what we've done, even when we've had a horrible week, even when we've messed up. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ alone, faultless to stand before the throne. And while everybody's praying, Nobody's looking around. I just want to say, if, you have, if you're recognizing that you've never trusted in Jesus to save you, I want to encourage you to do that today. If you know that you are a sinner and that you deserve judgment, now's the time for you to ask the Lord to forgive you, to just confess that. You can pray in the quietness of your heart right where you're at and just tell the Lord, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know I deserve death but I believe that Jesus died for me and my sins. Please forgive me and save me. And if you believe in your heart, you will be saved. Father, I pray that you would make these truths, massage them deep in our souls again so that we would love Christ, run to you, celebrate this week what you have done for us. I pray that even right now, we just sing and that we praise you because you are so worthy. We love you, God, in Christ's name.